Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started, guys. Appreciate you guys being on the line with us tonight. We're going to um, be diving into week five of our online discipleship program. This week, we're diving into week five, and we are in uh, the book, How to Study Your Bible, and uh, we are going into uh, the second week of learning about interpretation, and it is chapter five entitled, It's All Greek to Me. And what we're going to learn this week and what we talked about in the book uh, that you were reading this week is something known as word studies. So for those of you who aren't familiar, the Bible is actually not one book. It's 66 books. It's divided into two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And of course, the original languages that were used were not our language English. They were, for the Old Testament, primarily Hebrew with a small amount of Aramaic and in the New Testament, it is Greek. And so we have great translations in English. We have very, very accurate and trustworthy translations that we can use. But it's very helpful in Bible study to do word studies and understand what was the original language, because there's always nuance and meaning that you cannot immediately translate from one language to another directly within a single word. And so it's always very helpful to figure out what was the original language saying. And so when we get into the interpretation section, we want to be able to do word studies. Now, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to share my desktop because I'm going to share with you guys a um, an online tool that is going to help you a lot. And um, it is this tool right here called blueletterbible.org, blueletterbible.org, and uh, I hope you guys can see my screen. I cannot tell if you can, but I I think that you're able to see my screen. Now, the thing that I want to talk about before I get into blueletterbible.org is that the, the book, How to Study Your Bible, makes reference to using something called a concordance. Well, what's a concordance? A concordance was a a reference book, much like a dictionary or an encyclopedia, it's a reference book, but what they did when they made the concordances was people painstakingly took the time to document the use of a word in its entirety throughout all 66 books of the Bible. What do I mean? So, for instance, the word love. Every single place that the word love appears in an English Bible they documented that. And so if you wanted to see all of the verses that had the word love in it, you would open up your concordance, and just like a dictionary, all the words were in alphabetical order. You would flip to the L section. You would find love, and then in the order that the Bible goes in, so starting with Genesis and ending with Revelation, you would see every single location for the word love. And this was for every word, so even the A's and the the's, you would see every use of God, every use of Father, every word, they documented it. Well, when I was first coming up in my discipleship and learning, this was before the internet existed, 
we had to use a book called a concordance, and I still have a couple of them. They're very, very, very thick. But today, we don't have to do that anymore because we have online resources and we have Bible study tools that we can use. And one of the best online resources is this one called blueletterbible.org because it has a lot of different tools that we're going to use to study the words in your Bible and learn what the original languages said. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is something called the Strong's Numbering System. There was a man whose last name was Strong, and what he did was he went through the King James Version of the Bible, which was the only English version for many, many, many decades, for centuries even, and uh, it was the only version available to him, and he did kind of what you do with the concordance, but he documented the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic word that was associated with an English word. So, for instance, in John 6, I just clicked on it, and here we have John 6, 1, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Well, he documented, when it says away, what Greek word is there that we translated away? And I'll show you kind of how this looks. I'm getting ahead of myself. But here's the original Greek. And you're like, my goodness, I couldn't read that if I tried. Don't worry. You don't have to. But you see this where it says went away right here? That is the Greek for apercomai. And you can even hear how it's uh, pronounced by clicking this right here. And see, I didn't say it. Any, I didn't say it anywhere close. It's aperkamai. So, anyway, let's go back. So, if I go to so the, here's the point. Speaking of the Strong's numbering system, I want you to understand what this means. So, for every single Greek, Hebrew, or Hebrew word, there is a Strong's number. And there are tons of Bible study resources when it comes to language study that refer to the Strong's number. And, um, for instance, I have a massive work called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament and the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. And each, um, each Greek or Hebrew word has a complete article about that word that is very comprehensive all of the ways that word was used in the secular world, examples of its use in literature and historical writings from the time, any insights into how the word could have been used or the way the word could have been used or how different types of context can affect the meaning of that word. Well, when you want to find that article in that resource, you need to know the Strong's number to look that up. So this is not something you really need to understand right now. And again, the blueletterbible.org website is going to make it where you don't need to know the Strong's number every time. But I wanted you to understand what we're talking about or what somebody may be talking about when they mention the Strong's number or when you see um, that written in some commentary that you read or some Bible study resource that you read. So let's talk about what you're going to do to study a word in blueletterbible.org. So the example I would give is John 6.35 is the one I wanted to talk about, and we're going to do it in the ESV. Now let me just say one other thing about this. The Strong's number only applies to the King James Version 
and the New American Standard, which is this right here, NASB. Now, what Blue Letter Bible has done is they've done the work to create the equivalencies for these other translations. But the reason that it only applies to KGV and NASB, or originally did, was that the King James Version, again, was the only Bible that existed when Strong did his numbering, and when they did the New American Standard translation, they made sure to do it exactly in alignment with the Strong's numbering system. So every word in the NASB has the exact same number as it would have had if it was in the King James Version. And so that's why those two were originally the only ones that the strong numbering system applied to. So we're going to do ESV, and we click this right here, and it takes us right here to John 6.35. Now, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So now what we can do is if we click on the link to this verse, it's going to take us to the Greek. So here you have John 6.35 in its original Greek. And then down below, you have the order of the words. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. There it is. But you can see that for every word in English on the left column, there is the word in Greek on the right column. This is known as reverse interlinear, by the way. If you did it in interlinear form, it would simply be exactly as it is in the Greek. See how said is the first word in Greek? But we don't understand the phrasing, said to them, Jesus, I am, whoop, said to them, Jesus, I am the bread of life. That doesn't make sense. So we use the reverse interlinear because it puts us puts it into the right order for us as an English reader. So let's say we want to know what this word life is. Well, here it is, Zoe. And notice that the Strong's number is G222. So now we know it's Zoe, we know it's Strong's, but that it really doesn't tell us much about the word in Greek. It just tells us what the word is and what its Strong number is. So now we can click on this link right here. And that will take us to a little article on the word Zoe. We know that um, it means life, the state of one who is possessed of vitality or is animate, every living soul of the absolute fullness of life, etc., etc. Here we have Thayer's Greek Lexicon, which is a famous Greek lexicon that you don't even have to pay for. Um, and it shows where Zo a lexicon does is shows where that Greek word is used in other places. So here we see that it's 1 Peter 3.10, uh, Hebrews 7.3 and 16, etc. And you have, again, this is also provided for you by Blue Letter Bible. So here in Matthew 7.14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. That's the same Greek word, Zoe, Matthew 18, 8. And if your hand and your foot or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame. Same Greek word, so forth and so on. And there's a lot of tools out here that you can search through. You know, here's that theological dictionary of the New Testament reference. Um, you have a Vines Expository Dictionary reference, Zoe, 
um, life living, lifetime life giving. The English zoo, as in zoology, comes from this word, is used in the New Testament of life as a principal life in the absolute sense, life as God has it, that which the Father has in himself and which he gave to the incarnate Son to have in himself. John 5, 26, and which the Son manifested in the world, 1 John 1, 2. So this is an article written about the Greek use of Zoe in Scripture. So I know that might sound complicated, but it's actually quite simple. Let's just review again. You're studying a line in Scripture, and you want to know what the Greek actually says. So we go to John um, you know, 1, 1, very famous verse. We go to the English Standard Version. We click there. Here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's click that and see what's happening here. So the beginning, this is the Greek word. The Word, the Logos, which is a very famous word to study. Um, and the Word, the Logos, was with God, Theos. And the word logos was God, Theos. So we can click, like, what is um, what does this word logos mean? We click on the Strong's number, G3506, um, and it here, here's everywhere we see that word used throughout the New Testament. We can go up here and click on this Vines Expository Dictionary entry, and it's got a whole bunch of information here about that. We've got the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament reference, which is, this is a very abbreviated uh, segment of what you could find there. Uh, other synonyms in Greek, etc. So this is how uh, easy it is now in our modern era to do word study. We, have, we are so blessed. What used to require a lot of scholarship and a lot of study of the Greek language is now right at your fingertips as a disciple of Christ right here online and blueletterbible.org. So uh, hopefully that was clear, and uh, I would just encourage you guys, uh, make sure that you're adding word studies to your repertoire uh, when it comes to, to your Bible study. Let's talk about John chapter 6. What'd you learn about the bread of life this week? When is this taking place? When is this whole discussion taking place? We have a specific reference to time. Look at verse 4. What's it say? Aha, the Passover. So what happened at the Passover? What is Passover about? What happened was the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and Moses had gone to the Pharaoh and uh, done what God had told him to do. He spoke for the Lord and said, Let my people go. Nine plagues in, the Pharaoh's heart was still hardened, and he was not willing to relinquish. And so the final plague, the warning was that the Spirit of the Lord would enter Egypt and that the angel of death would take the firstborn child of every home. And the only homes that would be exempt would be those that had slaughtered a spotless lamb, had dipped hyssop into the blood of that lamb, and had coated the door frames of the house with blood. And when the, the angel of death crossed or passed over those doors, um, they would not, he would not enter. Uh, he would pass over that home, and the firstborns would be spared. Well, there's a lot of symbolism there that's giving us an image of what's going to happen when the Messiah shows up. 
because the Messiah would be the spotless lamb, and it would be his blood that would cause eternal death to pass over someone, that the death would not apply to those that were covered in the blood of the lamb. And so it's very interesting that it's at the time of Passover that we have this discussion taking place where Jesus is telling them that, uh, that he is discussing the bread of life. So what, um, what kind of spurs this discussion of bread and the bread of life? In John 6, 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. Here again, we have the theme that we've talked about the last several weeks of the signs that he was doing on the sick. So we get some indication here that Jesus' ministry is starting to come into blossom. Uh, people know who he is. It's, it's, he's no longer an, an unknown quantity out here in the Galilean area. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and I can't wait for you guys to go to Israel because you'll see this area is not flat by any stretch of the imagination. It boggles your mind. For my entire life, when I pictured Israel, I just pictured this flat desert. And there are parts of it that are like that, but not here. This is a very, very mountainous region. In fact, I'll post on the Discipleship Group Facebook page a picture of me standing on top of one of the mountains that it, it, it's not the one, but it, it's you know indicative of what one of these mountains would have looked like that Jesus would have gone up upon. So Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, just as you just mentioned. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Uh, A little quick note. Most scholars believe that what we're looking at is a crowd of at least 12,000 people. And they say that just knowing statistically what the population looked like and the fact that we're only numbering the men and the women would have been with the men most likely or many of the men would have had their wives with them or their mothers or sisters, women that they were responsible for. And then, of course, they would have had children. So if there's 5,000 men, we can count on there being at least that many women. That's 10,000. And then there's going to be children involved. So being very conservative, we're looking at 12,000 people. So it's funny that we have historically said Jesus fed the 5,000. He didn't feed 5,000. He fed every single person, of which 5,000 were men. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 
When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It continues on. And Jesus walks on water. And then down starting in about verse 22, really verse 26 is where we get this discussion of the bread of life. So let's think about what we learn. Let's look for all of our references to the word bread. So starting in verse 23, we have our first reference here, um, since up above, and it says, Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. The next place we see the word bread is down in verse 30. They said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then we have the next one is in the very next verse. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what is the bread that is talked about here in John chapter 6? Jesus is the bread. We're going to see throughout John that these metaphors for Christ, metaphors that Christ gives us himself. Last week in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus was the water. He was living water. Now we're going to see that he's the bread of life. We're going to see that he's the light of of the world. I want you to start looking for these metaphors and analogies because they all have great significance and meaning and go towards John's purpose, which is John 20, 31, which is he has written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and in so believing may have life in his name. When the when the first century Jew They understood the significance of the water. They understood the significance of light. They understood the significance of bread. As we see here, this reference is at the Passover time. Bread was involved there. They were to make unleavened bread um, when on the first Passover that ever happened. On that night in Egypt, they were to make unleavened bread. And the reason it was supposed to be unleavened is it was a sign of the haste with which they would have to pick up and move. And so for for millennia following that event, when the children would make the unleavened bread, they would inquire, why, Mom, don't we use yeast in this bread? And it would be like, because it reminds us of how quickly we had to pick up and go in the Passover. It was just another reminder. Something that you'll see that God does a lot is he thinks multi-generationally, and he creates all these symbols that spark conversation between parents and children so that the parents will be reminded to give a testimony to the children of what God's done. So we have bread involved in the Passover. Then the nation of Israel goes out into the desert, and we have bread again. We have the manna. They were starving in the desert. God caused a crust to grow over the earth every morning. It was bread. They would go out and collect it in baskets. They could only collect enough to eat for one day. Why? Because it was a symbol that the ultimate bread was still to come. They could not 
get their fill of the manna, but the bread that would satisfy eternally was still to come. So here's why Christ says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Then we have the next reference to bread in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And so if they didn't pick it up in verse 33, if it was a little too vague for them, we pick it up in verse 35 with absolute clarity. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, referring back to the water that we learned about in chapter 5. Next reference to bread is verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread. They came down from heaven. By the way, again, people who are the conspiracy theorists who say that Christ never tried to claim he was God, he never tried to claim he was the Messiah, this was all made up later. Well, why is it that the Jewish ruling council always wants to stone the guy? They wanted to stone him because they understood absolutely without question, what he was saying. They believed he was calling himself God. They believed he was blaspheming. That's the definition of blasphemy, is to equate yourself with God. And so they grumbled because of that. When he says, I'm the bread of life, they know the spiritual and theological significance of that, especially as it relates to Old Testament prophecy. Okay, then we go down to verse 48. He says it again, I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. So here we get into him starting to allude to his disciples that he's going to perish, that he is not going to be the conquering military hero that many of the Jews had expected them or had expected in a Messiah. We see the next reference to bread in verse 53. Let me ask you, did anybody pick this reference up? Does anybody know where the reference to bread is in verse 53? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. So flesh there is not the word flesh that we see in other places in Scripture where it talks about flesh in a sinful way, like the flesh versus the spirit. Here, he's talking about the bread of life. Flesh here is a synonym of the bread we've been dis discussing earlier. So in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh, or could say, bread and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh again bread is true food again verse 56 whoever feeds on my flesh another synonym for bread so what is Jesus saying here are we supposed to be cannibals as Christians I mean what's going on we eat and drink of his death on the cross now, this is very interesting. By the way, historically speaking, in one of the ways that Christians were disparaged in the first two or three centuries was that they used this language of Christ all the time. And, of course, we have the Lord's Supper where we you know, say, this is my body, take this in remembrance of me, this is my blood, drink this in remembrance of me. And we have that um, given to us in the book of Acts. 
they used to disparage Christians by saying that Christians were cannibals because they, they keep talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. But this, there's no such, we, we didn't mean anything of the sort, did we? Of course, what we meant is that we, as our sustenance, rely on his sacrifice. Now, I want you to really internalize the depth of what we're saying. How much do you rely on actual bread and actual water? How long could you go without food? How long could you go without water? Isn't there, without you even consciously thinking about it, a deep, deep trust in food and water to sustain you and cause you to be able to live? Well, of course. Well, for the Christian, see, the, the, the pagan, they eat bread that won't satisfy, that will only allow them to last a little while, and then, as it says in verse 49, they're going to die. But for the Christian, our bread, our very bread, our water, is not things that will only last a little while. Our bread, our water, our sustenance is the sacrifice of Christ. That is what sustains us. That is what we rely on. That is where our trust is placed. And for us as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, really what is providing sustenance for me? Once again, This isn't to try to take some naive perspective that we don't actually have to eat real bread or drink real water anymore. That's not what he's saying here. But spiritually speaking, and and, philosophically, if you think about what am I really counting on to get me through, it is no longer earthly bread and earthly drink. It is Christ himself that is our sustenance. Let's move on to the next question, which is, what did you learn about being raised up on the last day? Well, let's let's just ask it this way. Where Where do we see this word raised? Because let's do some observation. Let's observe what we learn about being raised from wherever we see that phrase. Somebody can somebody tell me where the first place is that you see raise? I will tell you that it is John 6.39, John 6.39. So let's go there. It says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then verse 40, we have it again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what do we see there? Well, I don't think he's talking about judgment because these are the people that have trusted in him. Now, there is a different kind of judgment that Christians will face. We won't face the white throne judgment. Yeah, well, so here's what, let. so that's really good insight. And again, I want to just encourage you Let's not overthink things when we're doing our observation. Let's not try to get hyper um, esoteric or spiritual about it. Let's just say, what does this say to me? It tells me a couple things. That Starting in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me. So 
A, Jesus has someone who sent him. We know that to be the Father from the verses above. So the Father has a will, and part of that will is whoever the Father has given him, meaning those who believed in him, he will raise up. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the, the dead will physically rise. It's that simple. It says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, I will raise him up on the last day. So it tells us there's a day coming where the dead are going to rise. They're going to get out of their graves, just like Jesus got out of their graves. Now, this is going to become very important as part of our worldview because, let me tell you, one of the great deceptions of Satan is to convince us that heaven is a place where we all float around like little angels with a robe on playing a harp. Well, who wants to go to that kind of heaven? Nobody. So guess what? People don't give a rip about going to heaven because they're convinced heaven's a boring place. What we need to know is it's not like that at all. That our physical bodies will get out of the ground, and when we're in heaven, we will be in our physical bodies exactly as we are today. We'll be able to touch each other. We'll be able to eat food. We'll be able to drink beverages. We'll be able to play sports and instruments and craft things and whatever. I mean, uh, we're going to be raised up. Look at verse 43. It says, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then if we go down to verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we keep getting the same idea. Uh, so we have a couple questions, and uh, it says... Um, how about if we're cremated? I assume the ashes will just come back together into physical form. Yeah, I mean, God's a miracle worker. I don't think ash is really going to be a discouragement to him, although I will tell you that it has been tradition for many, 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 many centuries because of the idea of the physical resurrection of the Christian that Christians were very against cremation. It's only a modern-day American thing that Christians have been willing to cremate themselves. Now, again, I don't think theologically it matters, but um, I will just tell you, traditionally, for 2,000 years, Christians would not burn themselves because they expected their bodies to get out of the ground. So, yeah, but again, if, if God can make us uh, in a word, he can cause our ashes to come back together. So if you know people who have been cremated, don't let that cause you to panic. And if you're like dead set on being cremated yourself, um, I don't know that I would worry about that much either. I personally am not going to be cremated, but whatever. Um, then um, Dawn says, uh, when we first die prior to the rapture, we will reunite with the body when we rise up. Absolutely. That's exactly right. So if we die before um, you know, the second coming, uh, we will go to heaven, but it will be a temporary heaven. It won't be the ultimate heaven. The, the temporary place is the place that our ancestors are now. Like in Hebrews, it tells us that we have a great cloud of witnesses that are watching our every move and are cheering us on in this Christian life, wanting us to, to run the race in such a way that we win the prize. Um, we have the Hall of Fame, you know, the Faith Hall of Fame, people like Moses and Noah and so forth that are sitting there. So we know that they're in heaven now, but they're not with their bodies yet. But that day will come. Last uh, thing, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. How does somebody come to the Father? 
exactly, through Christ. Specifically, what does that mean? Does that mean you um, you serve in Sunday school? So we're we're trusting in the in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We're we're trusting in His death, um, as it's re- being referred to here. It's mostly being He's mostly referring to His death here, but of course we know that it's also His resurrection. Um, but our, we're going to trust in you know His body, His blood for eternal life. So last thing is, um, what are your takeaways from John chapter 6? I mean, how can you apply this to your life? Everything that God does, he does with a purpose. So if you think back, you know, we're, we're, we're going back 4,000 years to get to the manna, and yet he was already thinking about Christ at that moment, and Christ being here with his disciples, doing what he's doing in this chapter, even then. Karen mentions that uh, people scattered when it got a little weird. Uh, Jesus talking about eating the flesh and blood and all that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, Jesus was a controversial figure, and he never backed away from any of the controversial things that he might want to say. And absolutely, um, when when he starts talking about this, um, people weren't sure that they wanted to stick around. One thing that I think is interesting is that in verse 70... It says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We're really early on here, and um, already he's pointing out what Judas is going to do. And in spite of that, Judas still does it. Isn't that interesting? I also think it's interesting that they're like, Man, we could spend a whole bunch of money and still not have enough to feed these guys. And they they weren't even considering that they've seen him. I mean, they've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him heal the sick. You know, they, they've seen all these amazing signs already, and there's it's they still don't get it. They're still thinking, uh, so many people, no way to feed them. We don't have enough money. Sorry. I guess we're going to need to make them mad or whatever. You know, they, it didn't even occur to them that Jesus could be the one to pull it off. And I think that we oftentimes get like that as well. We lose sight of that we have a miracle-working God. His job is miracles. His very nature of everything he does is to perform miracles. And we look to earthly solutions, and the earthly solution's not there. We think, well, there's just no shot. Um, Well, of course there's a shot because it's God, and he controls everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can provide in any way that he wants. So a great lesson. All right, guys. Well, with that said, I I hope this has been valuable. I appreciate you guys being flexible on the time today. And uh, we will be back together next Tuesday at the right time, guaranteed. And uh, we'll continue on with the study. Till then, guys, God bless you. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout-out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.